Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for attending tonight's event with Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones. This program is brought to you all by the Associated Students of the University of California Vote Coalition, the Goldman School of Public Policy, the Fisk University Alumni Association, and the Commonwealth Club of California's Creating Citizens Education Initiative. My name is Alex Edgar, and I'm here as a second-year student at UC Berkeley and the recently elected External Affairs Vice President with the ASUC, our student government. And I am honored to be here to introduce our incredible speakers. Our interviewer this evening is Angela Glover Blackwell. Glover Blackwell is the founder of Policy Link, a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. Under her leadership, PolicyLink gained national prominence in the movement to use public policy to improve access and opportunity for all low-income people and communities of color, particularly in the areas of health, housing, transportation, and infrastructure. Prior to founding PolicyLink, Glover Blackwell served as senior VP at the Rockefeller Foundation. A lawyer by training, she gained national recognition as the founder of the Urban Strategies Council. As a leading voice in the movement for equity in America, Glover Blackwell serves on numerous boards, and she advised the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve as one of 15 members of its inaugural Community Advisory Council. She's a professor of practice here at the Goldman School in UC Berkeley. And now it is my immense pleasure to introduce Justin Jones. Representative Jones is an activist, graduate student, and community organizer in Nashville, Tennessee. He graduated from Fisk University with a BA with a BA in political science and is currently competing his Master of Theological Studies at Vanderbilt University. Born right next door in Oakland, California, He grew up here in the East Bay, where he attended public school and learned at an early age the importance of speaking up for equality for all. He enrolled at Fisk University in 2013, where he received the John R. Lewis Scholarship for Social Activism. Inspired by the university's legacy of the student-led movement for civil rights, Representative Jones became involved on campus and in community groups and spent his four years organizing student campaigns for the expansion of health care in Tennessee, the repeal of restrictive voter ID laws, and community accountability in cases of police brutality. He's been arrested over a dozen times for nonviolent protests. Yeah, give it up and is a recipient of awards from the Tennessee Human Rights Commission, ACLU of Tennessee, Tennessee Alliance for Progress, Fisk University Alumni Association, Vanderbilt Organization of Black Graduate Students, and the Nashville NAACP. Last month, Representative Jones became the subject of national news when he and fellow Tennessee Representative Justin Pearson were expelled and then reinstated to their seats after leading a gun control protest on the House floor. Since then, he has emerged as a leading voice in the fight for common-sense gun laws, racial justice, and the protection of our democratic values. It is an honor to have both of them here with us tonight. And now I'd like you all to join me in welcoming to the stage Representative Justin Jones and Angela Glover Black. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And every bit deserved. You have made us all so proud, and we are so pleased that you've been able to come and make a stop here in California. 
We're going to have a broad-ranging conversation. And before we get into the thing that put you in the national spotlight, I think people need to know more about what you've been doing all along. Um, from Oakland, and these are the right roots to be an activist, because that's really what Oakland is so well known for. But at Fisk, you were on the uh, John R. Lewis Social Activism Scholarship. So you had that. And then... I was just trying to find out more about you, and I stumbled across your book, The People's Plaza, and I spent some time with it today, reading uh, Reverend Barber's introduction, reading your introduction, and then I listened to three of the chapters, and hearing about those 62 days that you spent right there sleeping and protesting and organizing was extraordinary. And when I think about that, coupled with the way that you responded, the way one would expect you to respond after the horrible mass shooting at Covenant Elementary School and join the protests, protesting gun violence, asking and demanding uh, some gun control. You really represent good trouble. You really represent good trouble. And... I'm curious, out of all the things that you've done, what stands out for you? What do you want to lift up? What have been some of the learnings about what it takes to engage in good trouble? Mm-hmm. And welcome. Thank you. Thank <laughs> mm-hmm. you. Well, first of all, it is honor. You know, I'm honored to be here um, with you all today. Thank you so much for this homecoming celebration um, here in the Bay Area. Um, good trouble. And just trying to take, take in all this because this, I mean, this is, this is what good trouble is about. Good trouble is about you know this this beloved community that we're trying to create this this multiracial democracy. It's about um, not allowing the politics of hurt to operate in the comfort of silence. And so, um, right before I went to Fisk University, um, and I, I made a last minute decision. I, um, one of the San Francisco Chronicle articles from 2013 says that I still had my housing work, my housing paperwork in in a binder when I was leading a protest outside the Oakland Federal Building. Um, following the murder of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of George Zimmerman in 2013. And that for me was um, a moment, a a pivotal moment in my journey. Um, It was a moment when I was 17, um, Trayvon was 17, and I was um, with the Oakland Youth NAACP in Florida, just miles away from the Sanford Courthouse where George Zimmerman was acquitted um, that summer. And I just remember seeing the grief of our elders. I remember seeing the frustration, the outrage, the righteous indignation um, of students. And so as soon as I landed back in California, um, in Oakland with some friends, we organized uh, a a large rally at the federal courthouse building because we said um, whether, you know, a neighborhood in East Oakland um, where there had just been a shooting of a young um, girl who was eight years old or a gated community in Sanford, Florida, we had to address the issue of gun violence. And so it's kind of a full circle that that's also what led to this now pivotal moment of, of being expelled, of challenging this proliferation of guns and this culture um, that is connected to white supremacy that um, is about protecting guns more than we do the lives of people, about um, toxic masculinity where we have to have access to these uh, militarized guns um, to compensate for, you know, for other things. And so I, I just think it's, it's, it is, you know, that's the good trouble. But I also want to say, too, that um, it's connected to a lineage of liberation. Mm-hmm. It's connected to a, a ancestry. You know, I, um, I think of my dear mentor, um, Diane Nash, and um, I see some Fisk guys who I went to school with here. <laughs> um, and Diane Nash came to speak at Fisk. And Diane Nash, for those who don't know, was one of the um, leaders, the pivotal leaders of the of the national movement um, and student movement in Nashville and um, led the Freedom Rise of the sit-ins. And I remember she told us at Fisk um, that she had her will written out when she went on the Freedom Rise. And she looked in our chapel there and looked at everyone in the audience and said, when I, when I got on those, you know, when we prepared to get on those buses and, and had our wills written out, um, we were thinking about you. Um, because even though we had yet to meet you, we still loved you. And I think that's what good trouble is about. It's about recognizing that we have to sacrifice uh, for those who are coming up after us, um, for those generations who are coming and rising, um, those students who I saw in Tennessee in the gallery um, who were saying, we don't want to have a shooting in our school, middle school students, high school students, 
And when we saw these students and I saw my colleagues um, choosing to ignore them, choosing to go about business as usual, um, I, I talked to my colleagues, uh, Representative Pierce and Representative Johnson, said we have to find a way to get in the way and disrupt business as usual and show solidarity with these people and these young people, um, many of whom could not even vote, many of whom feel disenfranchised, but all of whom feel in terror of their lives. Um, we should not have children pleading for us to um, not die. And that's what they were doing. Um, and so I hope that answered the question. I went all over the place, but I think um, those are just some examples of good trouble that I've, I've have led to my journey. Yeah, I wouldn't say you went all over the place at all. You were consistent with living up to what you have put on yourself, mm -hmm. that you have told yourself that you are going to be one who's going to stand up. That even as others are struggling with what are they going to do and you know other people want to act, somebody has to act. And once you found out you could, mm -hmm. then you leaned into it. It's interesting, though, that as a social justice, racial equity, moral leader, that you have chosen to run for office mm -hmm. and to be in office. Because not only is that not the usual path, it often is something that's rejected mm -hmm. by people who have a critique of systems in terms of what they want to uh, use their energy to do. What led you to think that you were that you wanted to translate your outrage and your determination into being an elected official? Mm -hmm. So I took a very non-traditional route. And um, as was mentioned, I think, you know, before being in elected office, I was arrested, you know, in total now 18 times at our state capitol. I was banned from our state capitol for a year um, as we led a protester move, a KKK statue that stood in the capitol rotunda. Um, we had a statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was put up in 1978, a statue that the Ku Klux Klan of the KKK had a press conference in front of. Um, and this was a symbol that welcomed people or unwelcomed people, you know, I would say, um, to the people's house. Um, so I was banned and, and um, was framed by the former speaker who had to resign for racism and sexism. And then in 2020, you know, slept outside the Capitol for 62 days trying to meet with the governor about the crisis of police brutality, about the crisis of racial injustice. Um, and rather than meet with us, he had us arrested and brutalized and uh, terrorized um, by the same troopers who I see every day when I walk into the Capitol um, and, and who um, are supposed to be there, you know, as a lawmaker for our safety. But like I told them, you know, I don't feel, you know, this is not a place that I feel safe, but it's a place that I go uh, to do battle for my people and for my district and my constituents. Um, so I decided to run, number one, because Tennessee Constitution says lawmakers can't get arrested. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, so. Well, we actually do have a provision that when we're in session, we can't get arrested. So that's why you see me, you know, getting in good trouble because we cannot get arrested during session. We're out of session now. So, um, <laughs> Look <at> but, <laughs> but really it was, you know, um, I think we have to change the paradigm. We have a paradigm that says you have to speak truth to power. I, I rejected that and said, no, in power, we will speak truth. In power, we will speak the truth, which is, the, you know, allowing suffering to speak, bringing the voice of my people. I'm the most diverse district in the state of Tennessee to the halls of the legislature. Um, for my district, it is the most diverse district. It's a working class district. Um, it is a district that extends from East Nashville to Antioch, which is a place where people are kind of being pushed out to because of the core of the city is becoming too expensive. Um, and I ran against a, a city council member um, who um, everyone said, you know, soon would get the position because they had all the endorsements. They had, you know, every type of organization support. And they said, who is this, you know, student at the time who's been arrested, has no chance. But I just went to the people and I said, you know, I think it's time to go from the jailhouse to the state house. And we knocked on doors and we talked to people and we stressed the fierce urgency of now. We stressed the need to have people who would fight and who would be unyielding in, in advocating for our district and who would be unafraid um, and, and who, I'd, you know, who were familiar with that building. Because, you know, what I knew was that going to the legislature, I already knew from experience, I knew that it was hostile territory. I knew that it was a place that we would not be welcome. I knew that someone who looks like me, um, you know, they told me you could not run with long hair. You could not run with earrings, that you, you had to assimilate and conform. Um, if you watched our expulsion hearing, I had a member stand up, Representative Sabi Kumar, and said, um, you should just be grateful that you were even here. You should have assimilated and become one of us. And, mm. and this is what he told me in my expulsion hearing. And that's the exact problem is that so often we have people who assimilate and who and who get absorbed into this system.
Um, and so what inspired me to run was to realize that there is such a thing as being too late. And these things that we were, we were talking about, this, uh, you know, Iran, it, recognize that we're facing a crisis of, of white supremacy and white nationalism in my state. This is where a lot of these white nationalist groups are moving to, building compounds in East Tennessee. We're experiencing a crisis of democracy. We're experiencing a crisis of our economy. Um, I, I represent a state where we don't have a minimum wage. Um, and so we, you know, defer to the 725, which we know you can't survive off of. I live in a state that has where one in five black men cannot vote because of felony disenfranchisement that has the lowest voter turnout, the most restrictive voting laws. I live in a state that had the highest percentage of low wage workers. I live in a state where we have such an unequal tax system where we tax groceries, but we don't tax corporations. All these crises, I just realized that we had to be in there and force them to hear us and that. You know, we tried to knock on the door and we tried to be heard, but then, you know, it was important to be at the table where they couldn't ignore us. And, and they still ignored us, which is why we went to the well of the house to say we're going to bring this house to uh, shut it down. Um, like the chant says, what do we want? Justice. If we don't get it, shut it down. If we don't get it, shut it down. We had to shut down the, the house because it was no longer the people's house, but it became a frat house. It became a palace. It became this 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 place that was corrupted um, by an extremist uh, supermajority that is beholden to um, interests that are not in the interest of the people. Really interesting. You are describing things that are broken, mm -hmm. things that don't work which I think kind of sets up the generational change that we have seen in terms of activism. When I was a girl, I grew up during the civil rights movement, and there's no question that my parents and their colleagues were trying to get in. There was a sense that it was unfair that people who were black were being kept out. And I remember when I was in college, I went to Howard University, I wasn't drawn to the civil rights movement, but when I came out of college, I was immediately drawn to the black power movement because at that time, it was exciting to see people who were saying, this isn't about just getting in. This is about a shift in power. Mm -hmm. This is about an economic analysis. I get the sense listening to you that part of the continuum is really moving from let us in to we are going to own. Mm. We are going to own. We're going to exercise ownership. We are going to lead. We're going to birth a new nation. We're going to breathe life yeah. into values that have only been talked about. Does that ring true for you? Mm. Is that, do you feel that? Definitely. I think, you know, we are not looking for legitimacy or acceptance from those who don't even see us as worthy of sitting at the table, sitting at the dais with them. But we're saying that... Um, we are reclaiming space. We're reclaiming um, spaces of power, and we're doing it in ways that um, are, you know, often put us in a position of friction. You know, be, mm -hmm. of, you know, being in a, on on the edge is a place of friction. It's a place of discomfort. It's a place that um, is is often often lonely to be. You know, and it, I often sat on committees where I was the only, you know, black member on the committee. And you know, even before we got expelled, before this incident. The whole session, I, I felt what it was like to to not be recognized as speaking committee or to be, you know, I, I think I, 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 if there's an award, I, I was gaveled down the most of any other member in our body just for <laughs> just for speaking, because, um, you know, anything that discomforts them is out of order. Mm -hmm. Anything that is not a, a part of their dominant narrative is out of order. Um, and so we're, we're going there to say that um, I think Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, uh, she had a saying, she said, move on over or we'll move on over you mm -hmm. because we're moving on moving on over. And that's this energy that we're bringing. You know, I often say that we are the find out generation. Um, if you know the full quote, <laughs> um, what's the PG? Messing around, you find out. <laughs> so that's, it. that's it. And I think that's, that's what they're doing. You know, yesterday I went to, uh, I met with the governor yesterday and I brought students with me. I brought, you know, um, these high school and college students with me. Um, and he met with us, the lieutenant governor met with us, but the speaker of the house, when he saw we were coming, ran, ran out of his office and tried to run out. But he didn't know I have the same badge to get on the same elevator that he does. Mm -hmm. And so these students, we go in on the elevator and and it was so embarrassing for the speaker to run from these students who are simply saying we want to live. But again, he's finding out, you know, this is this is a moment where we have to um, do things out of the ordinary and where we have to um, represent a power outside of the ordinary, because what I will say is that if they 
did not think we were powerful as a generation, if they did not think that we um, were a threat, that they would not be trying so hard to stop us. Mm. Um, because our expulsion was not about two individuals, even though Pearson and I are the two youngest black members, and we were going to talk about, you know, I want to mm -hmm. talk about that. I'm 27, he's 28, and, and there was that. It was really an attempt to expel the movement. It was really an attempt to expel what we represent in that space. Um, and, and it is this unapologetic um, sense of, of, of urgency, this sense of, of disruption, the sense of breaking from normal, normalizing their policy violence that we're seeing every day. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to expel. Mm -hmm. um, and instead, they've done the opposite and, and, and re-energized the movement. I love the brand of leadership that you represent. And the good news is that you're not the only one. I talk to so many of your peers who bring some of this same inclusive, radically inclusive generosity. I mean, I love the way you talked about Diane Nash and you talked about Fannie Lou Hamer. And when they took over the People's Plaza outside the state um, office building, what they called it was the Ida B. Wells Plaza, the way that you embrace the women and their leadership. But clearly you and, and your peers are leading with a generosity. You are leading for all. You are breathing life into what it means to be able to step out from a place that comes out of what I just call the black-white paradigm, mm -hmm. the oppression that we know so well, mm -hmm. we know the history, but that oppression actually births the protocols of oppression. Mm -hmm. And those protocols apply whether you're a person with disabilities or you're transgender or you're Latinx or you're Asian or you're woman, and you're leading for that. What is that? feel like to be able to grow up in your circumstance, whatever that was, and to realize that the values that you're embracing are the values that will lead to a generous, inclusive nation, to lead for the all from a place of deep understanding of oppression. Yeah. I mean, I think... Number one, I don't think we have any other choice in this time that we're in, but to but to embody and to represent that type of of, of servant moral um, leadership in this time. I think um, I think I'll say the same thing, you know, that I said after we were expelled is that this attack is going to set a very dangerous precedent. Other states will follow. And what happened after that was the first trans lawmaker of Montana. Representative Zephyr was silenced and was, you know, kicked off the floor and then in Nebraska. And so our, you know, our liberation, all of these things are connected and as well as the forces that are trying to um, break us, the forces that are trying to silence us. Um, before this expulsion, before the shooting happened at Covenant, um, Tennessee was on this rampage of passing the most anti-LGBTQ laws in the nation. Um, you know, we were the first state to pass a law banning drag shows. And exactly three weeks before the shooting at Covenant, I stood on the House floor and said how ridiculous it is that we're banning drag shows, which are not a threat to youth, but mass shootings are a threat to youth. Um, the number one cause of death of those zero to 17 um, is gun violence. And yet we're here manufacturing crises and manufacturing issues um, to distract from the failures of the supermajority, the Republican supermajority in my body. Um, and, and what happened? We had a mass shooting. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to stand um, in radical solidarity with each other. Um, we have to um, challenge this, this system of plantation politics, as what I would call that, wants to see us divided and wants to see us um, in the sense of, of, of separation and, 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 and isolation, because that's how they maintain their power. And so... Um, like I said, I don't think we have any other choice, especially in this time where we have so many compounding crises, where so many of these crises are happening um, simultaneously. Um, and so I think that's, it's going to be critical as we move forward. And I think that's what this new generation of voices represents. Um, I'm, I'm so excited, like you said, to not be the only one. But, you know, I was just in Washington um, with, you know, met with many members. But um, my dear brother I want to lift up is Maxwell Frost, who's the youngest mm -hmm. member, um, the first Gen Z member um, of Congress. 
um, who represents Florida. You know, you have, um, you know, I was in New York, in Harlem, um, speaking at a church there, and I was meeting with um, Councilmember Shields, say, who's the youngest councilman, um, and, and it was just this amazing force for, um, who comes from the movement as well, from 20, you know, so, and I think, um, I was just, before I came here, I was talking to, and I'm going to show this recording later, um, my dear sister, um, Congresswoman Summer Lee, the first black woman to represent Pennsylvania um, in Congress. Um, and who represents the legacy of Shirley Chisholm, who was, yeah. who was unbought and unbossed and unbowed. And so, I mean, we are connected. And, and the most powerful thing to come out of this experience is um, to see how connected our movement is. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere we go, you, you just meet other people doing this work. Um, I just met the councilman here, the brother here who represents um, this university and the city council. But I'm just so excited by um, this generation of voices who are leading and who are not waiting for permission mm-hmm. um, to do so. I'm excited, too. (laughs) Um, Now, let's get more into what happened. But I think it might be helpful for the Californians here, though I know lots of people here come from all over the country, for you to introduce us to Tennessee. Because, you know, I think a lot of people might not know exactly what's going on in Tennessee. Yes. Well, I saw I see my mom and my stepdad here. So I want to say say (laughs) that. And, and also, um, it made me think, she's not here, but my, my Aunt Renetta, when I went to Fisk University, when I went to Tennessee, um, I saw her the day before I flew out. And the first thing she told me was, uh, Justin, don't start no protests in Tennessee. Um, <laughs> she said, it is not California. It is mm-hmm. not the Bay Area. Right. Um, which is true. <laughs> um, which is true. Um, there's two, there's a duality of Tennessee, though. Mm-hmm. It is the state that um, is the birthplace of the Klan, but it's also the state that is the birthplace of the national of this nonviolent student movement that transformed this nation. Um, it is a state that Dr. King came to. He came to Nashville. He came to Fisk University. He said, "I came to Nashville not to bring inspiration, but to get inspiration from the movement that is happening here." Um, on May 10th, we just celebrated our 63rd anniversary. It was the first Southern state to desegregate its lunch counters um, to have a victory um, during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, it's a state where Highlander Folk School was that was critical for the Civil Rights Movement. It's a state um, where people like Ida B. Wells um, you know, was grounded, but it's also a state where she was run out of, you know, threatened with lynching. And, and so um, we have this duality there. Um, and I really think it really represents this front line of the nation. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, who went to Fisk, said, I keep saying Fisk because all these Fisk guys are sitting here. So let, let me not get distracted. But W.E.B. Du Bois said, so goes the South, as goes the nation. Um, and that's it, it's so critical in Tennessee because Tennessee has been this front line of the battle in, in this nation. The legislature is a body where there are you know, not many people who look like me. It is um, a supermajority of extremists. Um, I've, I've said some of the policies that they've passed, but it's a place that you go in and you're surrounded by symbols of, of white supremacist violence. We have, as you enter, a Confederate statue of Sam Davis, the boy hero. We had Nathan Bedford Forrest. You have Andrew Jackson, who's responsible for um, the genocide of, 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 of our indigenous um, siblings. Um, and, and so, you, it, so it's this, this, this representation of so much um, horror you know, for this nation. But as I walked those streets and in the same plaza we slept on was the same plaza where John Lewis and Diane Nash and Bernard Lafayette um, and Rick Patton, all these young people um, also led a revolution against Jim Crow and equality. One story that just came to mind when I was saying that was that uh, Michael Bloomberg came to Nashville, he made the mistake, and came to Nashville and came to Woolworths. And, and I, I went because I said, let me hear what he's talking about. And he said, we don't need evolution. We don't need revolutionary change. We need evolutionary change. And I raised my hand in the middle of his speech. I said, Mr. Bloomberg, do you know where you are? Mm. In Woolworths, do you know where you are? You are in a place where young people led a revolution to change this nation, to challenge um, segregation and white terror. Um, and then I was escorted out. But at least I, that, that will tell you about Tennessee. Um, that, that is, this is what this is Tennessee. It is sacred ground for me. It is a place that um, that we, we, are, we are lifting up a movement. There is something being resurrected in Tennessee. Um, that expulsion. We got expelled 
the same week of the anniversary of Dr. King being assassinated in Tennessee, um, during Holy Week, you know, I mean, literally the day before Good Friday, you know, being expelled, I came back after Easter. So there's so so much, con- you know, converging at that moment. And so, um, but it is a state, you know, a state where Dr. King came, you know, a great prophet of this nation and was, was, was slain by gun violence, was slain by those who were fearful of this movement of the Poor People's Campaign about this multiracial democracy that we're talking about. I'll just end by saying this, the, ca- the Capitol, um, just give you a visual of the Capitol, there's two parts. You have the Senate, uh, which is a retirement home. And then, <laughs> and then you have the house, which is a frat house. I mean, this is what it is. They, they treat this. I mean, the same week they were expelling us, the vice chairman of the Republican caucus, who now has resigned, he resigned not too, just a few weeks ago, um, was covering up his sexual harassment of interns. But they expelled us, not him. That gives you an idea of the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, what is the status of the movement to do something about gun violence or gun control? Mm-hmm. Is that robust? Is it emerging? Where, where is it? There, I mean, the movement is being led by students. It is being led by young people. So for the past, we've seen the largest protests in, in Nashville since probably the 1960s. Thousands of people surrounded our capital, filled our capital, um, and they didn't do it like the insurrection. They did it in a way that was redemptive, that was restorative, that was that you know that was um, not about terror, but was about trying to end the terror of gun violence. Um, and and the House Speaker Cameron Sexton, um, who was one of the greatest enemies to democracy in this nation, went on Fox News and said that these young people, these mothers, and these grandparents and clergy were worse than the insurrection on January 6th. And, and that's actually what led to the expulsion, this, this type of rhetoric. But um, there's, there's a very robust movement in, in Nashville um, being led by young people, being led by this multiracial as well as intergenerational because it's young people. But you also have these mothers, these parents coming who, who until the day we ended session, um, showed up every single day. And they were so threatening to the powers that we had three more weeks of session. And the Republican leadership said, no, we're ending early. They cut session early. Even though we had three more weeks, they said we're ending because they felt so much heat. They felt so much pressure that um, they thought that by ending session early that it would stop it. But they realized that it it, is not stopping. And so now we have an NRA-endorsed governor calling a special session on gun violence because he feels, I don't think he saw the light, but he felt the fire. Mm -hmm. Um, He felt, he felt that this was not an issue that was going to stop and that the movement is going to continue and it's going to continue to to grow. Um, and I think that is that is a testament to people power in Tennessee right now. Were you surprised by the outpouring of support that both came from your constituency at home and that is across the nation? I, I know I was very surprised. Um, a lot of people say, you know, how did you feel during that expulsion hearing? You know, what was going, you know, through your mind? And there's a lot of things going through my mind. But one thing I want to honestly say is that what the world witnessed, what the nation witnessed in that hearing was just another day in the Tennessee General Assembly. That type of hubris, that type of arrogance of power, that type of abuse of power is something I've experienced since I walked into that building. In the first week I was there, I remember Senator Jack Johnson on the elevator as I was going up to my office, was on the elevator and said, you are worthless. This, this, is, this is the environment that we, we're forced to be in. It's an environment where you sit in committee and so often they silence you. What people don't realize is that we went to the floor, we went to the well, um, because that whole week we were silenced from talking about the issue of gun violence. Um, all they wanted were moments of silence and, and these false prayers. And so in my committees, I brought up the issue. You're out of order. Br- brought it up on the floor. It wouldn't be recognized. And so we had no choice but to walk up to the well because we and our people were being pushed back continuously. And, and you know, I snuck that little me- that mini uh, megaphone in because they cut the microphone. <laughs> um, and so we had no other choice. And that sign that if you look at the picture, I had a sign. Um, and someone gave me that sign. But then recently I had a mother come up to me and she says, my daughter made that sign. A child, a nine-year-old child made that sign. So she said, you literally took the voice of my child to the house floor. And it said, protect kids, not guns. And it was drawn with um, markers. Um, and so I did not expect it. You know, I, I definitely did not expect to be not miss a day at work and be back three days later after the weekend. Um, mm-hmm. Because the National Council called an emergency meeting and I was reinstated. Um, and so I don't think my colleagues expected it. You know, um, the speaker just thought that what would happen is that they would expel us, and it would be like every other time he's abused his power. There would be no accountability. Um, there would be no check on that abuse. And yet the opposite happened. It, it really um, has played, you know, it, that extreme action has really shown what we're up against in this nation. 
And it is this very real threat of authoritarianism, this very real threat of fascism, this very real threat of, 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 this, of this white power structure that is intent on holding on to power by any means necessary. Um, in the South, we have a saying that a dying mule kicks the hardest and this mule is dying and they see it, that their power is, is dying and that they're, you know, you know, my state is becoming more diverse and they're, and they're like, you know, young people like us are running. They're like, oh, you know, we got to do something to, to, to cut this, to stop this. Um, they thought that that's what it was. It, that was a public, it was supposed to be a public spectacle, a public lynching. It was supposed to say, if you dare step out of line, this is what will happen to you. But they didn't, but the opposite happened. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and, and like I said there, like they tried to put us on trial, but instead we put them on trial before the eyes of the nation. In, in 10 minutes, I'm going to start taking uh, questions from the audience. So just let you know that. Um, yes, we have seen what we're up against, but we also have seen what we have. Mm. And, and part of what you experienced when your community sent you back and part of what's happening around the country, it was an amazing moment. I have... Um, a regular call I do on Fridays with activist friends from around the country. There's no more than about a dozen of us, but we we touch base on Friday mornings. And when I came to the call after you had been expelled, I was low. And when we were doing our check-in, I said, you know, I'm a bounce-back person, and I'm going to bounce back from this, but this was a blow. And the woman said, we're going to play this tape for you. And you're going to feel better. And she took over. They transferred uh, the controls to her. And she played you. She played you. And it it just made the rest of my day because it reminded me that every time you get reminded of what we're up against, we see what we have. Mm -hmm. And what we have is growing. And it's the future. It's the future. One of the things that I saw in your book, or I think that, or someplace I heard you say, that January 6th represented choking the faint breath out of democracy. Mm. I thought that was a powerful statement, and I have been so impressed as I have watched you and your colleagues lean into democracy, that you're not just saying, I'm elected, and you're not going to take that away from me. You were saying, this is a test of democracy, and we believe in democracy. One of the things that I say is that the framers of this country punched above their moral weight mm-hmm. when they developed the ideals of democracy. It didn't reflect who they were morally, but that didn't mean that there aren't good ideas, mm-hmm. that there aren't concepts that we ought to be thinking about. And the future, if democracy lives at all, mm-hmm. it will be a multiracial democracy. And it will be a radically inclusive multiracial democracy because that's the only way that democracy can really live going forward. And so I'm curious to hear you talk about democracy because I know that your generation is taking on the mantle mm-hmm. of if ever it's going to be a model that we have to create it. Yeah. I think that I think that is that's precisely the challenge that we have. And I think, you know, we are at a very critical point because mm-hmm. I'm talking about democracy, but I also want to just say that the threats that we face, I think recognize the the danger to to them if we really have democracy in this nation um the danger to those who benefit economically the danger to those who who've, who've been in power you know in exploitive ways for so long and and that's why you kind of see this what's going through my head right now is i'm thinking of, of one of the greatest shames that happened this week and that was cnn giving a platform uh to trump surrounded by his supporters i mean that was that was not democracy because it was all people who, you know, were just rallying. There was no um, accountability. There was no dissent. There was, you know, it was, it was very shameful. And I think somebody went on CNN recently and they said, well, you know, if you really believed in democracy, if you really believed, you would, you know, you would be okay with this. And that's not democracy because these are the voices that have always been centered. These are the voices that have always been affirmed and uplifted. And we can't even avoid them. I mean, this is the voice that always given, is given the megaphone. Um, but democracy, at least from the sense that we're trying to embody this multiracial democracy is about bringing that, that amplification to places where it's been, um, 
silence, places that, you know, it's been stolen from, um, you know, not through, you know, privilege, but through this systemic advantage, you know, this design. And so, you know, when I think of what we represent as multiracial democracy, I think of it being multiracial. I think of it it being intergenerational. I think of it being, um, you know, interfaith. I mean, these are the things that our our movement represents. And and that is the threat that, you know, even in my state that they were afraid of was that we – we represent, you know, if you look at Pierce and Gloria and I, um, we represent the grand divisions of Tennessee, West, Middle, and East, and we represent that movement. We represent that vision. And so I think the greatest thing I can say about this vision of democracy is that um, it's about more than an election, but it's about movement. It's about it's about centering um, voices that um, sometimes have to um, be disruptive, you know, um, that sometimes have to to be uncomfortable um, and, and force uncomfortable conversations. Because for so long, you know, though, I mean, in my state, an, another egregious thing that's happening is that we're banning books, we're banning history, um, because some people say they make them uncomfortable. And, and the reason they're doing that, I, I just keep leading into that, because I just think every time they act in these extreme ways, it confirms that we're winning. It confirms that we as a movement, that we as a people um, are winning because they're doing this because they're afraid, you know, this happened after 2020, that consciousness of these young people, those who took to the streets, those who occupied the plaza, like every time that they do something, it's like, okay, we're on the right path. When they expel us, okay, we know that you feel threatened right now. When when they try and ban books, when they when they made, you know, in Tennessee, we made protesting the plaza felony. I said, okay, we're being effective because they're increasing the penalty because they see that this is actually forcing conversation, that we're not going home, that we're sustained. So every time they act in such extreme ways, it should galvanize us to show that, you know, Diane Nash told me that she said power only shows itself when it has to and don't underestimate power, but it will only show itself when it has to. So the fact that these powers are are showing themselves in such overt and blatant ways um, shows that, number one, they're threatened, that they're, that they're dying, that the systems are dying, and that, you know, this hope of, of multiracial democracy is, 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 is being revived um, in a way that is, that is restorative and it should be restorative for all of us. Mm-hmm. How can young people support and um, be effective advocates in the way that that you have, what what advice would you give young people about how to be able to support and advocate for what it is that we want? Mm. I think the most important thing is to not um, wait for permission, not wait for approval to to move forward, but to um, to do it. I think you know throughout history, young people have brought urgency to the crises that we face, and they've often done it um, despite. You know, all that critique, like, you know, during the sit-in movement, the students were told, oh, this is, you're asking for too much, you're being too radical. And that's what we were told. A lot of people don't realize, um, and I was trying to think of, I'm going to talk about this, but um, we had, you know, members of our own party reprimand us for what we did on the floor of the House. You know, we we had members who said it was too um, radical, that it was, you know, out of decorum, um, and that is because we're young and that we don't understand um, how the system works. And the truth is we understand how it works, but we don't want to, we don't want to work that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so that's the key thing is that um, do it anyway. Tap, <laughs> tap into their radical imagination. Yeah. Right? I have a podcast called Radical Imagination because I think as we're trying to birth this new nation, as we're trying to figure out how to get systems and institutions to produce results they never planned to produce, we can't just think we're going to get there in the same old way. Mm-hmm. And young people need to just not be afraid of those thoughts, lean into them yeah. and move forward with them. Here's uh, somebody heard that you ran into Joan Baez in the airport in Newark. They'd like to hear about that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, Joan Baez actually was flying from Nashville to Newark, and um, it's just a powerful voice of the, of the civil rights movement. And um, he lifted up just this importance. I, I think it's a great symbol of something that has been critical for our movement in Nashville, which is that music has been such an integral integral part, even in, in the plaza. Um, music has been a sustaining um, force of resistance. But um, we had ran into Joan Bias. She actually came up to like, Justin, and 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 I and she had a mask. So I didn't recognize her at first. I was like, "Oh, it's Joan Bias," and so, um, and so, um, she just said, "You know, I wish I could have made it. You know, I, I, I was beating myself up that I wasn't able to get down there or to to meet with y'all." 
Um, but I'm just so glad. It was so serendipitous that we ran into each other. Um, and so we we all, both were flying to Newark. And so, um, you know, I often listen, you know, listen to her music. You know, we know we know her songs were, were critical. And so uh, I think the video that people are, are referencing that they talked on the Colbert show was when we were singing together um, some of the songs in the movement. And, and that was actually really grounding, you know, to sing um, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around and, and you know, these songs because... Um, this was in the midst of everything going on. It was in those three days that I was expelled, um, and and just to be able to have a moment, just to have some joy and to have some to sing and to just be fortified in the spirit um, was really something I was grateful for. Um, and that um, it just it was a moment of history to to be able to connect our struggle to say that our struggle um, is 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 in a lineage and it is it's not new but it's connected um, to this lineage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, what is next for Common Sense Gun Reform in Tennessee? Mm. So we have a special session that's been scheduled for August 21st, and it's going to really be a a point of of it's going to be a pivotal moment for the for the nation. Um, I don't know if anybody else heard the recording. A, a court a recording was released of the Republican House Caucus in Tennessee. Um, one of their members actually recorded and released it to the media, and and it just showed their mindset. And, and, you know, you had members saying, you know, this is a basically they're saying we're reenacting the Civil War and that they're like, if Tennessee falls, um, the southeast will fall. And, and in a way, that's true is because, you know, Tennessee, we are successful um, in the special session. Um, it will set a model for other southern states like ours. We know that right after we got the special session called and we and we pushed, we had fought to get this special session. Georgia's now calling a special session about gun laws and, you know, other states are going to follow. And so, um I think it can set a model, but what's, what to be cognizant of is that uh, the NRA and all these, the Proud Boys, these groups are also going to be on alert because they don't want these things passed. And they've already started threatening my colleagues, um, sending threats, uh, um, both physical threats, as, as many of us get, but also, um, you know, electoral threats. Um, and so we know that it's going to be a flashpoint, I think. I think, you know, um, we're, we're very aware of safety and security of, at that time for our people, but um, it's going to really um, set set a crossroads of what type of state we want to be. And um, yesterday I met with the governor, as I said, the lieutenant governor. Um, we tried to meet with the speaker. He was not willing to meet with us. But um, the governor actually lost a friend in the shooting at Covenant. And I think that's why we've seen a, a big shift. Um, he lost a friend. And, and so it's personal. And so he says that you know he's going to act even if members of his own party are not supporting. He says, you know, he has to. And, and that's been the really powerful thing that I've seen is that we've been able to transcend this issue from partisan politics. Um, I've had more Republicans, you know, not legislators, but people in the community reach out saying they're frustrated with their elected official, that, you know, they see that we're fighting for them. Um, I've had more parents come cry and and mourn with us. Um, And that's what I told the president, too, is that, you know, we when I went to the White House, I said, I'm not coming here as a political leader, but I'm coming here to lift up this urgency and lift this up as a moral conversation. Um, and, and I think that's what we're able to do, um, you know, around this messaging of protect kids, not guns. Mm-hmm. This next question reminds me of something that I read in your book, and I want to say the name of it again, The People's Plaza by uh, Justin Jones. It is a great book, so I really want to recommend it. And one of the things that you talk about is the um, the, the pain mm-hmm. and the struggle and what it's like to be a leader when so many people are looking to you and you're learning as you're going too. The question is, if you ever think about giving up and how you move past it, and I just wanted to remind you about some of the things you said in the book because it caused me pause as I heard you have to acknowledge that healing needed to happen and writing the book was part of a healing process for you. Yeah, definitely. Actually, and I've been very open about this, and I, I made an appointment right before I came here because I was just traveling so much and there's so much going on. But I think it's so important, and I think this is something that our generation is doing better at, is acknowledging mental health and acknowledging um, the effects that these type of traumatic situations have on us. Um, I had to make an appointment before I came here because I think, you know, a lot of people, like people see this part. They see this part where we're here and we're with, with the love of community. We're, you know, being celebrated, but they don't see... Uh, the parts where, you know, you wake up and you're, you're, you're by yourself. And, you know, in my case recently, you know, like 
because of what happened and obviously around the Second Amendment issue, it brings out a very fringe element. And so I've gotten, you know, a lot of death threats to my office, um, so many so that the state troopers have said, you know, usually when lawmakers get that many death threats, we have to sign a trooper outside their house and to escort them around. But I said, you know, troopers are not going to make me feel safer. So, like, you know, <laughs> I, no, thank you. Um, but I think we have to be very cognizant of our mental health, of of, of, of effects. You know, that 2020 protest um, was traumatizing. And I think, you know, across the nation um, to see and to experience brutality when you're protesting police brutality, surveillance, um, to you know, be isolated in the jail, um, all these things. And right before when I was in New York and I did it undercover, so now I'm telling on myself, but like, you know, I was at the um, protest for Jordan Neely. And so like, you know, and seeing uh, the brutality of, of the NYPD there was very triggering of what, you know, I remember from 2020. Um, I had some friends who were arrested protesting at the subway and I was doing jail support when I was in New York even recently because, um, I went just to support a vigil and it ended up being mass arrests by the NYPD of those who were mourning, you know, this brother who was lynched, you know, on the subway in New York City, which shows us that these issues are not just a southern problem, um, but they're a national problem. I mean, even here, you know, I remember growing up and I remember the first instance of police brutality I heard growing up was Oscar Grant um, at Fruitville Station. And so, I mean, this is a national problem, um, but it's just more pronounced and overt in the South, I think. Like, you you have, um, you know, a Klan statue, you know, so it's very obvious. But I think, um, again, going to this conversation on how do we heal and process is, is for me, I've learned, number one, you do it in community, um, you know, going to therapy, finding moments of joy, and, and, and recognizing that um, there are no messiahs in this work, that we, you know, we have to you know, I believe in practicing um, vulnerability, you know, on my terms of vulnerability, because I think it's important to show people that um, if I can do it, you could do it. Like, you don't have to be anybody um, in particular, but, you know, you can be human and, and, and learn as you go, make mistakes, um, you know, find moments where you you have to check out, you know, as well. And I think we have to be very clear about that. And, and I've heard, you know, you know, I've heard some people say, argue against that, like, you know, we have to always look strong, we also have to look put together. But, but I reject that because I think it makes it, it, it makes this mythology as to what the movement and, and who can be in the movement. Um, and really, the movement is, is everyday people, people who um, often are the least expected. You know, I think, should, you know, that's that's who we need in the movement. And that's what's happening. And that is really what is the threat to power. One of the people I interviewed in this past season on the Radical Imagination podcast was Prentice Hempel. Mm -hmm. uh, who runs the Embodiment Institute. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the um, collective trauma and collective healing. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me that not only is your generation bringing leadership that has different outcomes. I mean, you really want to be transformative in your leadership. Um, but you also... The leadership is, it makes space. Mm -hmm. It makes space for healing. Mm -hmm. it, it makes space for the relationship building that is important for transformative solidarity. You can't just go from transactional solidarity, you sign my petition, I'll show up your rally, to transformative solidarity, which is your issue is my issue. I don't achieve my goal if you don't achieve yours without relationship. And I see your generation paying attention there. I also am impressed just listening to you and who you're citing and reading about your relationship with Diane Nash and how she is a real-time uh, mentor for you, that you really are intergenerational. That's not just language that you use, but you practice it. Um, I just want you to know that that gives me an awful lot of hope and really um, it, it lifting up a new brand of leadership. Um, Part of what people talk about is that you don't have so many individual leaders anymore mm -hmm. that we don't just count on a single person here and there. True movement leadership. Mm -hmm. Is this conscious as you and your colleagues talk to each other about the future? I think so. I think, you know, this is this is the model. This is this is the framework that that we're seeing lifted up, you know, across the nation. I think it's, it's, it's going to be critical as we move forward. Because um, it rejects this false binary, you know, like I, I sometimes see people with these shirts and and it makes me laugh because it's not true for me, I know. And these shirts are things like, you know, this is not your, your you know, this is not 
your grandmother's civil rights movement. You know, I'm not my ancestors, and 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 I reject that. You know, I, I am my ancestors. I, I you know this is you know this is the strength of of people like my grandmother Harriet. You know, people who um, resisted and and who were unbowed in the face. And so, like when I think of Diane Nash, when I think of these mentors, I know that. It, it takes this humility to recognize that, you know, we are connected. I keep bringing up this word of this lineage. Like we are in this lineage of liberation. We are a people of progress. And what we're doing is just to pass that baton further, you know, to those who are coming after us. And so we are connected. Um, and I think there's some, there's power in that. Like there's so much power in that, in that recognition that um, we, we stand, you know, in this, how do I put this? Is that, it's something I think about every time I walk into that chamber and I'm surrounded by these these white men who, who make me feel like you don't belong here. And it reminds me of something that Maya Angelou said. She says, I come as one, but I stand as 10,000. You know, every time we go in there, we come. I come with my ancestors. I come, um, you know, with those who um, have made it possible for me to be in this moment in history, to be here, standing here embodied as I am. Um, and, and that's what gives me hope. And it also just this recognition that uh, those part of that 10,000, too, are those who are coming after, you know, my children. And, and, and that whatever I do, what helps to take away fear, what helps to take away some of that anxiety is to say, you know, I know that what I'm doing is, 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 is for the type of world I want my children to grow up in. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, that's why I'm willing to I was willing to risk a title, you know, because this title was not worth, um, you know, betraying the world that we're trying to build for those who are coming. A title and position are not worth that. And so if it takes going to the well again, if it takes, you know, sitting in, as, as I was doing yesterday, um, two days ago in the speaker's office, we'll continue to do it because we there there is, um, again, such a thing as being too late. And there is such a thing um, as, as, you know, we don't want to betray our mission as a generation. And so I don't, yeah. I have a fun question for you and then a closing. Um, if you were driving across country and you could just have one CD, what would it be? Uh, one CD. Whole country. I, You're going to yes. hear it again and again. Yes. <laughs> um, well, my soul music right now that I've been listening to, um, playing to is um, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. So that's, so, that's a good yeah. one. That's a good one. Yes. My closing question is about something we've been talking about, Hope. Mm. Um it was literally after the babies were killed in Uvalde, Texas. Mm -hmm. I was um, giving a speech the next day, and I was sitting in the hotel room trying to get it together, and I just couldn't get past what had happened. And quite randomly, somebody sent me something just on email, a quote from Miriam Kaba, the abolitionist, saying that hope is not a feeling. Hope is a discipline. Mm, and yes. it was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And I thought about what, what does that really mean? And clearly it means it takes discipline to get up every day with what we're facing and have hope. But it also that hope is a discipline. It requires the discipline of getting the information. It requires the discipline of connecting with others. It requires the discipline of knowing what to do and then be having the courage, the resolve to do it. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that, that hope is a discipline? And for you, what are the main parts of it? Hmm. I definitely resonate with that. Um, uh -huh. I heard it put like hope is a spiritual practice. Like that's that's mm -hmm. how I heard it put. And I think it definitely is something that we have to uh, be intentional about. And I think it's something that for me, it looks like grounding in community. It looks like you know, having those vulnerable conversations when you don't feel hopeful and to realize that our strength comes from each other. Um, hope can be mourning with each other and saying we're, we're mourning to, we're going to mourn as we did in Nashville. And then we're going to go here and we're going to shut this building down. You know, hope, hope is something that is, is so threatening because it, it says that you may have the supermajority, you may have this, you know, the military power, but we are going to act anyways. Um, and, and it's something that is, is the practice that we have to ground in in this time because uh, so much around us um, can easily give us despair and depression, anxiety. But I think um, just that discipline um, and discipline is sometimes not comfortable. Discipline is sometimes what I would call stubborn hope. You know, you got to be, you got to be stubborn. And so, um, but really what gives me the biggest hope um, is that we are doing this as a generation, like we're doing, it's not just us, but we're doing this as a generation, the students here, the students in Nashville, like there is something happening in this time 
and it is something that um, we have not seen before. Um, and there's a quote, I'm trying to remember, I think it's by Kira Mae Weems. She said, I knew not through memory, but through hope that there were other models by which to live, which means it's not something we've seen. So we don't we don't have memory of it, but we know through hope that there's another model and we're trying to embody that other model. That's that hope that led people to sit in at lunch counters to say we refuse to be people who are segregated. That's that hope that led people to say that there's something beyond this plantation. That's that hope that says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to Alcatraz Island and, and occupy it um, to stand for indigenous rights. That's that hope that led students to challenge. These, these, these anti-LGBTQ laws to say we are not going to live in a state that, that continues to lift up hate. That's that hope that continues to show up time and time again and, and, and push and push and prod and agitate and say, hell no, we won't go. And then say other times, you know, stand up, fight back. That is hope. And, and it is something that is really going to um, restore this nation beyond electoral victories. Beyond, I mean, it is, it, is, it is a movement and it's something that operates in and out of election season. It's something that it operates in and out of, of a title. And so I think that is the hope that is going to um, build this new world that we're building for, for, for us and for those generations coming up after us. You give me hope. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.